So, as you guys are probably very well aware at this point, there's only two weeks left um, in the semester here at the university, um, and there's a lot of things going on right now. Um, apparently, a lot of things going on, like right now at this moment, um, given the amount of people who are here. Um, and there's like this, when you walk around campus, Maggie was just talking about it, there's like this this uh, this aura of Christmas going on right now. There's this, the trees are lit up. There's snow on the ground. Winter break is coming. We see lights. We see, we we hear songs. There's this Christmas spirit. And then there's also like winter break and the smell of like mom's cooking already around the corner. A month and a half off. And there's all these things going on just here locally. But then also when you think about what's going on like globally and locally in the news, there's kind of just this buzz to what's going on um, right now. Uh, and and as, as a guy who studied journalism here, I was always interested in not only what the news is saying, uh, but what the news is communicating. Because there are two different things. People say things, but there are things they're trying to accomplish. There's things they're trying to communicate when they're saying um, those things. And this week, there are two things that happened in the news um, that I think work greatly uh, in bringing out the points Paul's going to make today in our text, which is Romans 8, 20, or 18 through 25. There are two things which happened um, that kind of frame our discussion. The first is, if you guys didn't know, Mark Zuckerberg, Mr. Facebook, him and his wife had a baby girl. Um, and the day, I, th I believe it was Tuesday, the day they announced uh, their, the birth of their daughter, they also announced something else. Do you want to see it? They're giving away 99% of their wealth, um, which is roughly $4.5 billion, um, which is crazy uh, that he could live off 1% of his wealth and still be wealthier than any of us will ever be. Um, but they're giving away 99% of his wealth because they're starting this foundation aimed at tackling the world's problems. The things that are going to cause their daughter um, kind of stress going forward of global warming, of uh, inequality, of, of all these things that they think their money can solve. They're now taking this vast sum and they're putting in a foundation trying to solve what they call, quote, major issues in today's world. The second piece of news is something that developed last night and early this morning in lieu of the tragic shootings in San uh, Bernardino. The New York Daily News um, and social media took up a cause, hashtag, hashtag uh, prayer shaming. Um, and what they did is they shamed openly. You could actually see the front page of uh, the Daily News here. They openly shamed kind of Republican politi politicians, conservative speakers who tweeted, quote, prayers to the family. Right? That seems like the normal thing to do. Like, we're praying for you. Our thoughts and prayers go to you. Um, but the message written on the front page of the Daily News in New York is God isn't fixing this, with the subcaption under it as the latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood. Cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. So what we see here is, is two stories which actually discuss suffering. One in a positive sense, in a distant sense, and one in a very real sense. And far from just talking about gun control issues, I want to point out two major messages that these stories give us on suffering. The first is that suffering shapes our perspective. It changes it. Here we have the Zuckerbergs who three months ago were content with their 100% salary but the birth of their daughter inspired them to think in the future. 
to think about the world that was coming after them, to think about what could change. And the second one shows that suffering, real suffering, assumes the detachment of God. It assumes that God is disinterested in what's going on. He's either disinterested or incapable, and instead, men need to act as God, and men need to fix this. God's not fixing this. You need to fix this. You have the ability to fix this. It shows that there's a need. It shows what needs to be fixed, but it also shows who needs to fix it. Things need to be fixed. It's up to you to fix it. Both of these things are directly related to what Paul is going to be sharing with us tonight um, from Romans 8. And that's because last time we met, two weeks ago, Paul ended his section with this, Romans 8, verse 17. And he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We will be glorified if we suffer. We will be raised with Christ if we suffer with Christ. It's clear to see that suffering, regardless of where you are, regardless of, you, you can be in any culture, in any language, in any country, and the presence of suffering will stimulate dialogue, discussion, heartache, heated tempers, a feeling of duty, a sense of what we ought to do, and the Bible isn't silent on any of these issues. The Bible doesn't avoid the topic of suffering. And what Paul's going to discuss tonight in Romans 8 um, is what suffering reveals and how suffering will ultimately be ended. And what we're going to see tonight is this. The anxiety of our world reveals a deep longing for redemption only God can give. The anxiety, the tension, the discussion, the drama, the headlines reveals a deep longing for redemption that only God can give. And so we're going to see what Paul, uh, how he finds that to be true tonight, but let's pray. Lord, we pray um, for this time as we are gathered. Um, and, and one thing we know in this room is there are people from um, different places, different backgrounds, different families, different income brackets that will experience many different things, many unique things, but one thing we know is that each and every person in this room will suffer. Each and every person in this room might get um, the news that someone they love, who they assumed was healthy, who they assumed was going to make it, was tragically lost. They might get the news that it's they themselves who have a cancer, that it's they themselves who are now counting their breaths and their moments. But one thing we also know is that you take into account the suffering. And so, Lord, we pray um, that as Paul is doing tonight, you may teach us how we can suffer. Suffer well. You may frame our expectations for suffering for your glory and for our good. We pray so in your name. Amen. So, uh, tonight we're going to look at what suffering reveals, but we're going to do it by looking at three realities. Because suffering is real. And we can't talk about suffering in just this theoretical, um, utopian world. We have to take into account reality. And the Bible does just that. Um, there are three realities we're going to see in Romans 28, 18 through 26. And the first reality is the present reality. It's the present reality. It's where we are right now. It's where Paul was when he wrote this book. 
And one of the greatest attributes of the gospel, one of the things that, that always excites my heart about the gospel, and I feel like it leverages it above anything culture can do, is that it really understands reality. The Bible makes ample room for what we know to be true. You see, and you know this, if you've paid attention to social media lately, if you've, you've talked about it in ethics class here on campus, a secular world, a world apart from God, can't make sense of our world because of suffering. They can't. Any idea of why we exist and what we're supposed to do, suffering is this proverbial wrench that gets thrown in, and we seek then to understand it. We become anxious. Why is there suffering? What's the cause of suffering? Is there a purpose in suffering? How can we stop suffering? What's the solution to suffering? They can't understand their own lives because the suffering exists. They can't live fully. They can't live freely because there's this unsolvable riddle of why we suffer hanging over their head. Why do we suffer? What's going to fix the suffering? And while we're in college and not many people sit in their dorm room pontificating suffering at night, the way we respond to car accidents who take our grandma, to friends who we know who had a stillborn baby, to our friend who got raped on campus, how we respond to those shows that we can't not interact with the subject of suffering. And the beauty of the gospel is that it talks about suffering head on. It talks about the problem. It talks about the cause. It talks about its solution. It talks about its ultimate undoing. But rather than asserting that we can only live in a world where suffering is eliminated, it goes one step further and it gives us the confidence to live in a world where suffering is rampant. You see, the gospel doesn't say the only way you can live, the only way world will make sense is if everything bad is removed. If life is just easy and there's nothing standing in your way, there's no opposition. You see, the gospel doesn't remove suffering and calls to live in this false utopian dream because that's not real. That's not the world we live in right now. It accounts for suffering and in the midst of that, it calls you to act Christianly. What, what Peter says in 1 Peter, um, to suffer as a Christian, to suffer well. And the problem with how we handle suffering is less of a problem with how we understand suffering. What does it mean to suffer? It's more of a problem of how we understand living. It's not that we don't understand suffering, and that, 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 that hampers our ability to live. It's that we don't actually understand what it means to live. And that's what Paul's talking about in this text. Um, I'm going to read uh, Paul's opening passage tonight in verses 18 through 20, and I want you to hear the reality um, that Paul is painting. I want you to see the tension and the words which he's using to describe this reality that we are in right now. <coughs> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so here we see this tension, right? We, we, we see Paul painting these poles here, these two ends of the spectrum. We, he calls us to live amidst suffering, but there's also a glory which is coming. 
He calls us to see this life riddled with futility, with uselessness, with hardships, with trials, with frustrations. But he also calls us to live in a life wrapped up in hope. And you see, oftentimes, we and so many people we meet fall into two camps when viewing this life. We view it as either too pessimistic, everything's doom and gloom and we can't enjoy anything, or we're entirely too optimistic and we can't really deal with anything. That happens both for secular people and for Christian people. They don't really acknowledge and don't deal with the things that hurt. They act like they don't happen. They act like they don't really matter. And we live on these poles. But what the gospel does, because it was written by the God who knows the hearts of man, who is God over this world, it brings us to the middle. And it paints a world which makes sense to us. A world which, whether we want to admit it or not, is the world we live in. And rather than just saying, you guys suffer, deal with it, Paul's gracious in explaining to us why we suffer. Look at Romans 8, 20. You want to know why we suffer? Romans 8, 20. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So I want, I want to unpack a little bit about what Paul is saying there. He's saying that creation wasn't born into futility. God didn't create a creation wrapped in pain and suffering. The frustration we face didn't develop in a vacuum, but rather creation, the word it says, was subjected to it, punished to it, placed into it. That means that everything we come to encounter in this world, which frustrates us, which angers us, which breaks our heart, which hurts us and which hampers us, was once foreign to this world. It's a new development. It's something that didn't once belong. So why were we subjected to it? Why was creation subjected to this futility? And more importantly, by who? Who in this text did that? It was God. God subjected creation. How is this supposed to be a good God? God subjected creation to futility. God subjected it to, to a... To a an annual beating its head against the wall, against everything that goes wrong. And it is God who cursed the world. We see that in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve sinned, and it was God who spoke to them, and he condemned creation, he condemned the earth with thorns and thistles. He says, you'll be hard, you'll produce thorns, you'll be hard to work. And then he looked at man and he breathed on man, frailness and pain and suffering. Man became what he once was not. And while it was God who turned off the lights, it was man who made his bed in the cellar. While it was God who came and cursed man, it was only because God had already warned us, don't eat from the tree. His words was, enjoy all of my creation minus one tree. Not because I'm holding back from you, not because I hate you, but because that tree will hurt you. And, and he says, eat from this tree. This is logic that Owen, my three-year-old, would understand. Eat from the tree and you will die. And Adam and Eve ate from the tree. And what happened? Now I want you to think about this. They didn't die. Sure, frailty happened. Sure, death was assured. Sure, thorns and thistles and pain and frustration and childbirth happened. But God's first reaction to the first sin was actually grace. 
What we deserved was to be wiped off the face of the planet with the bleach of God himself. But what instead happened is God was gracious to man in giving us a life which is frail, a life which is futile, but life nonetheless. So the world we live in, the world we come to encounter is the world that we made. It's the world that exists because we let imperfection in. It's the world that exists because we rejected God as the good creator. Rejected God as the good king. And now we live in a world where sin reigns rampant. We live in a world which is broken because sin exists. Suffering doesn't happen. You won't experience sadness in your life because random chance sucks. Sometimes the lots fall on you and you have to deal with it. Suffering happens because sin is here. Suffering happens because sin seeks to to rule you with pain and sin is the root of all suffering. Everything we know that hurts, hurts because of sin. Before sin, there was no suffering, no death, no disease, no famine, no mass shootings, but now we know all of them because we know sin. What causes suffering among us? What causes toils among us? It's the sin that we have brought into this world. Now, Let's get, let's get pessimistic and introspective here. Let's put on our goth clothes um, and let's say, well, you're saying God's gracious in allowing us to live. But wasn't that ultimately like a big jerk move of God? Wouldn't we rather just not exist rather than to live with all the pain and suffering we have to endure on this world? Wouldn't it have been more nice of God to, to sure he would end up killing us, but we would never know the loss of a loved one. We would never see a four-month-old dying of cancer. We would never see 14 people gunned down in San Bernardino, California. We would never know Paris terrorist attacks. And you know what? If that's all God subjected creation to, that would be an awful punishment. That would be a miserable existence. But that's not what God subjected creation to. Look back. At Romans 8.20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because of him who subjected it in hope. You see, the reason why uh, Paul paints this tension between glory and suffering is because hope is hardwired into us. We can't escape hope. Don't we all do that? We're naturally hoping already in light of finals week, we're hoping for good test scores. We're hoping that we can find the bare minimum level of studying and it will pay off with the grade we want. We wrestle with suffering because we want to make sense of it because we have hope. We want to know what the hope is. We want to know what the silver lining is. And so because of that hope, that seed of hope, it's like sand inside the oyster which produces the pearl. It irritates us enough where we seek to solve suffering, eradicate suffering, medicate it, numb it, understand it because we have been made hopeful people. We know that what is is not what was or what should be. We know because deep in our soul we have a hope for something more. We know life should be better than this. And because of that, it drives us to this anticipation which Paul is painting here. This tension, this frustration, this hope. And really if you think about it, this this 
tension or anticipation, whatever you want to call it, it really has, has two ways of, of ending, doesn't it? And we all know this. I want you to think about the anticipation you have when you go to bed on Christmas Eve. You don't really get over that, right? I, we're, we're getting older. We still are excited on Christmas Eve. We still have this wonderful anticipation of what's happening the next day. But now I want you to think about what's going to happen in anticipation next Sunday night, the week before finals week. That's a different anticipation. That's an anticipation we meet with dread. It gives us a knot in our stomach. We feel sick. Our knees feel weak. We get cold sweat in that anticipation. And you see, what that means is that tension and anticipation become enjoyable or unbearable based off the perceived result. If you think Christmas morning you're going to wake up to a tree um, with gifts under it, we have a joyful anticipation. We savor that pain, that weight, that longing. But if you know what happens that next morning is you experience a great trial, that anticipation becomes unbearable. And here's the thing. Humanity has become increasingly frustrated by this tension because each time we think we've found a new solution to the problem, a new God, a new Savior, a new means of satisfaction, we're disappointed and distressed by its inability to solve it. For thousands of years, we've been a slave to anticipation of solutions we know don't work. That only disappoint, that only poke and prod at false hope. For centuries, modern medicine has not solved our disease. Politics have not fixed suffering. Government programs haven't ended poverty. Technology hasn't terminated the problem of death. And yet year after year, and maybe in your own heart, day after day, you say, this is it. This is what's going to make sense of life. This is what's going to bring me enjoyment. This is what's going to bring me peace. This is where my hope is. And that anticipation crashes down on you when you realize that your greatest hopes are never actually met. And man, we are frustrated people. We are people turning to anything, miserable in that anticipation, just hoping that it will work, but knowing pretty much full well it's not going to solve it. Look at the political rhetoric right now. If X is our president, America will be great. If Y is our president, we're screwed. We treat presidents as if they're gods, but that's because we want them to be. A secular view of this tension which Paul paints a desire for this golden age which fixes everything is horribly dreadful because we really just fear our, our, our next false hope. John Steinbeck um, wrote in one of his uh, short stories kind of a tongue-in-cheek comment, which I think is really telling of our inability as humans to find true satisfaction, true hope, true victory in anything. We can't find relief, and in one of his short stories he says this, for it is said that humans are never satisfied, that you give them one thing and they want something more. And this is said in disparagement. Whereas it is one of the greatest talents that the species has and one that has made it superior to the animals who are satisfied 
with what they have. I have a billion deer in my neighborhood. None of them care about the next presidential election. None of them are worried about global warming or Ebola or mass shootings or terrorist attacks. They're perfectly content. But it's us. It's our subjection to futility which makes us long for hope and find disappointment. You see, the problem with our world is not the problem of suffering. It's the problem of hope. People understand suffering, don't we? <laughs> we know suffering. Too few of us know hope. Because you see, hope has to take into account the, the elusive aspects of life. Hope, the real hope, true hope, has to take into account not only natural disasters, but moral failings. Not only awful things, but wicked people. It has to take into account the timely death of an 80-year-old, the murder of an 18-year-old, and the sudden tragic death of an 8-month-old. It has to account for all of that and make sense of every last one of it. And the only hope which can stand up to this the only hope which meets reality head-on and makes crystal clear sense of it is the hope of the Christian gospel. The hope of the God who has subjected this world to futility in their sins with the promise of a future grace, of a new hope that God is not just potentially going to bring his people to or will potentially bring to the world, but that God will bring his people. And this is the inaugurated reality. This is the reality we have in part, but we don't have fully. This is where you guys are already thinking about Chris Christmas break, but you're not yet on Christmas break. This is the hope that we already have, but one day we will know even more. Romans 8, 20 through 23. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What is that hope? Here he goes. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul has this cadence and this progression here. He says, creation groans. Don't we see that? Just, just the sheer creation. Right? There was a, a huge summit in Paris earlier this week on climate change. We see climate change. We see tsunamis. We see earthquakes. We see avalanches. We see, we see things that, that affect inanimate objects on this earth that are corroding them, destroying them. We've also seen, as we just discussed, how secular people groan for something more. But then he goes as far to say that even Christians, even those who have the regeneration of the Spirit of God inside of them, they're groaning. They are aching. They are longing with eager anticipation. Now I want to I pause here for a second. Because just because Christians have true hope, doesn't mean we don't groan with pain in this world. 
just because we have the promise of glory and the true present salvation of Jesus, it doesn't mean that your heart won't ache at your own sin, as Paul talked about in Romans 7. It doesn't mean that you won't weep with those who are lost. It doesn't mean you won't scream out against the sin which harms, hurts, and maims those whom we love in physical and oppressive ways. It doesn't mean we come alongside a grieving widow and we weep with her. It doesn't mean we look at the Paris attacks and we say, don't worry about it, God's going to save it. But we are real people who understand real pain and we enter into that mess with a true hope. Men, we as Christians shouldn't be content here on this earth. There should be a deep longing, a groaning, an eager anticipation for something more. But contrary to culture, that something isn't a thing. It's not riches or fame or sex or acceptance. It's not a political system. It's not free market capitalism. It's not socialism. It's not fascism. It's not an idealistic dream that exists only in the minds of brilliant men. It's the promise of true redemption. That's the hope of the believer. True redemption, which is already there, but not yet. True redemption, which has happened in this moment, but is yet to still happen in the future. Look back at Romans 8, 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, what are we waiting for? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here Paul paints this picture of Christians. He says, you're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons. Now wait a minute. Literally, like uh, six verses ago, look at what was said. Same chapter, same author, same book. Verses uh, 14 and 16 of chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So here we have Paul in verse 14 15 saying, you are sons, you have been adopted, celebrate that. And here we have Paul saying, it's coming. You're waiting eagerly for that adoption. You see, we have been redeemed to a point where we are no more under judgment. Romans 8, 1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation. We are redeemed to where a penalty is removed. We have been made sons to such a degree where we can fight against sin with all the power of God himself. We have been given a hope in this world which goes far beyond the superficial subjectivity of circumstances. And yet, though we have the greatest gift in this present moment, greater than anything anyone has ever known, we are not yet who we will fully be. You see, for the Christian, our greatest glory is yet to come. Paul talks in Romans about being raised with Christ, and that's true in two senses. We are raised as new believers in this world. We are raised out of judgment. We are raised out of sin, and we are given new life in the Holy Spirit. But one day, we'll be raised a second way. One day, we'll be raised with Christ in a new world, with a new body, with new worship. You see, God created humanity. If we look back at Romans 20, it's talking about the garden. God created humanity in a perfect garden and sin ruined it. But our God is too great a God to be played by sin 
or by man. And what Christ begun on the cross, he's coming back to finish. The Bible speaks, uh, we're, we're in the season of Advent, the coming of Christ in the flesh. But there's going to be a second Advent. There's going to be a time where Christ comes back and that day, on that day, what the Bible calls the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will destroy sin once and for all. He will wipe, wipe suffering off the face of the earth and he will bring us into a new world, a perfect world, a world unstained by the things we've come to weep over today, a world which has never experienced the torture and futility this world has experienced, a world liberated by the truest God of all gods, a world that, that the Apostle John describes for us in Revelation 21, verses 1 through the first part of 5. Compare this description to the world we know today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, contrary to what the New York Daily News wants to say, God will fix this. And it's not up in the air. Now, when Paul is speaking of creation here in Romans 8, he, he's actually speaking of creation in terms of the non-human things, the created matter, the rocks, the earth, the sea, the trees, the glaciers. And yet he says this creation, this inanimate non-human creation is eagerly waiting in expectation for something. What, what, what do you think our world is anticipating in terms of creation, a new creation? What kind of redemption do you think this world is straining for, what he calls birth pains for? What do you think that is? What do you think it's longing to see? Because it's something I didn't notice until I looked at this. Look at Romans 8, verse 19. Look at what creation is looking forward to. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation's waiting for us. Creation's waiting for us to be holy new people in the name of Jesus. Look at what uh, he says in verse 21. Look again. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again, what's creation excited about? Us being redeemed, us being ransomed, us being made new by the image of Christ being present and with us. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, while creation is groaning, yearning, visibly, no one looks at this earth and says it's not weeping. 
Environmentalists, liberals, they see it. Conservatives, they see it. Christians, they see it. Buddhists, they see it. This earth is longing for something. It's waiting for redemption. It's groaning to experience something unique because it's not groaning to experience its own redemption. It's not groaning to see its own path of salvation. It's groaning for yours. It's groaning and longing and screaming for the redemption that only God's people will know. Do you understand the wonder of what this means about your salvation? You see, Jesus didn't die for creation sins. Creation didn't sin. You were the kid in class who spoke up and got recess taken away. It was the person sitting next to you that just had to stay in because you're the one who screwed up. You sinned. Creation didn't. Jesus didn't look at the trees at the beginning of the world and say, those are the ones. I'll predestine you in love before the world began to be my trees. I will be your father. You will be my forest. Before the foundations of the earth, God looked through the veil of human history and he saw his people. He looked at us. He looked at you. He looked at me. His blood wasn't shed for lobsters and fish, but for human beings made in his image, saved by his grace. That means that this redemption, this freedom, this liberation that creation is longing for is only the aftershock of your own redemption. It's only the scraps that fall off our already full plate. Christ will redeem his people so mightily that the world we know will be changed as a mere side effect, almost accidental. The glory we will know when we see Christ face to face and are raised in a new world will be so vibrant, so bright, so shaking that it, the overflow of God's affection for his people will be so transformative that the glory to be revealed is enough to shake futility from the core of this earth. Suffering from things which don't even have the capabilities to feel because the salvation which will be revealed is not worth comparing to anything we understand today. One more thing. Why is God redeeming the earth? Because it's it's broken. We experience drought, famine, mudslides, earthquakes, hurricanes. How many of those things affect God? None of them. God doesn't fix sin because he's endangered by it. God's not redeeming the world because he needs a safe space. God's fixing sin and redeeming the world because he loves you. And our God spares nothing to redeem us fully and righteously. The glory of what will happen to us when we are fully redeemed and, and resurrected is so powerful that the Bible paints this, this, this image we saw in Revelation 21 of what it calls the marriage supper of the Lamb where the church comes as the bride, Christ comes as the husband, and there's this amazing wedding ceremony. 
And the affection between the bride and the groom will be so powerful that even those in the audience will be converted into the bridal party. Do you see that? The earth, the audience of this cosmic love story will be seated at the head table because they're enraptured by the affection Christ has for his bride and the bride has for Christ. You see, people will look at that relationship and they'll be changed by the God who changes his people. And when that glory is revealed to us, when that's the picture we pulled up with both hands, even when our knees are straining under the suffering of this world, it shapes the way we presently suffer. That's Paul's brief conclusion tonight, and this is the hopeful reality. This is where we all live until Jesus takes us home. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See, we're saved in the promise of what will be We are saved because we have faith that while we are now assured salvation, if you are in Christ Jesus, one day you will experience that salvation in the fullness of your faculties. Not the slightest tinge of sin in your heart, nor sniff of sadness in the world. We will experience it all because the death of Jesus will not be something that secures our salvation, but something which actually brings it about in a new heaven's and a new earth. You see, right now you have been, um, been pardoned by Christ dying in your place, and we see that, and we know it, but one day you will walk through the halls of death itself, and you will see that Christ indeed took yours, because we will pass through unfazed by the one who died in our stead, and in the meantime, we wait patiently. That means we avoid uh, lethargic apathy, which typifies many Christians. And we also avoid this false Messiah complex that also many Christians fall prey to. You see, true believers won't throw their hands up in concession and be like, ah, God will fix it. Now they're sinners, what do you expect? God's going to deal with it. I always call them the, the like, like when we sing, swing low, sweet, no one sings that anymore. But when you sing that, like, swing low, sweet chariot, come forward, carry me home. They're just the get me out of here songs. <laughs> I'm done, come get me. But that's not right. But neither will we seek to attach hope in this present age to anything outside of God himself. And so many times we Christians say, man, if they just understood us, they would know us. If they just saw a cool church that's relevant with good music, if they saw my t-shirts, if they saw that I swore, they would understand. If we could get world peace, if we could have clean wells, if we could have the right president, if we could have the right government, if we could have the right language, banking system, wife, sexuality, gender views. And so often we become hyper in our ability to assign salvation to someone else. But it's only the salvation of God, the true hope of the gospel, which saves. For those of you in here who are not believers, that offer stands for you. That entrance into his grace, into his glory. You see, a life spent without Christ is a life of the painful tension of disappointment of anticipation which only comes back to crush you as you realize you're finding futility in things which can never save. And that desire you have in your heart, that desire to find the next stand-in savior, that desire to find the next Messiah, that desire to find the next woman, experience, dream, taste, house, degree, 
That's the seed of the hope that God has put in each and every one of us, testifying that you are meant for something more. That this world is not all we will know. It's the image of God screaming for a better life, which can only be found at the foot of the cross of our crucified Savior. So come and confess, believe, repent, and join God's people in this life and in the next. And for those of you who are believers in here, I want to challenge the way this hope manifests itself in your life. This, what Paul calls this patient living. There are three things I think we can be called to do um, in light of this. The first is that we proclaim. We proclaim truth. We are patient by proclaiming. I think it would be safe to say that part of the reason why creation is groaning, part of why creation is grieving, part of why creation is longing, is it looks at this world and it sees man as this note of discord in this other unified symphony of praising God. What does Jesus say about the rocks and the hills? They glorify me. What does David say? The stars proclaim your majesty. Earth can't help but worship Jesus, and creation looks at his people, and he finds you to be oddly silent on the fact. So what we ought to do is proclaim with boldness the name of our creator. We must proclaim in the face of the questions of suffering that it is indeed God's earth and that God will fix it, and indeed he already has started to fix it in the cross. Will you stand up to the world and pull out the rug under the feet of folly and point to the one who saves. Point to the redemption that brings true joy. Point to anticipation which brings joy and purpose and a secured, guaranteed Savior. And call those to join in the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, pray. I think it's funny how um, the beauty of understanding this hope rightly is that in the exact same breath, we can pray, God help me suffer come Lord Jesus. <laughs> we could say, God, for as long as I'm on this earth, give me the strength to endure, to fight, to resist, and to persevere. Oh, but God, I'm longing for that new heaven. I'm longing for that perfect relationship. I'm longing for the removal of the burden. So we pray in the tension. Pray that God is gracious, God is kind, we pray in anticipation of the hope yet to be revealed. And lastly, we persevere. Next week, Paul's going to get into the very specifics of what, we are to, what mindset we're to have as we persevere on this earth. But this week, he's calling us to persevere by painting a compelling portrait of the gospel in our own lives. A compelling picture of the redemption yet to come. Pray that God would give you perseverance in times which are going to become increasingly hard. Pray that he would impress upon you the beauty of that wedding supper, supper, the beauty of that new body, the beauty of the new earth. And be not disheartened by the suffering of our minds, the wrestle of our flesh, or the opposition of man. For as Romans 8, 7 says, if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. I want to close with 1 Corinthians 3. I want you guys to just listen to it. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, excuse me. We just start to, I'll just start my prayer with this. Um, for Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Lord, we can't see our resurrected bodies. We can't see the new heavens. We can't see the end of suffering. But God, what we can see is that Christ died in our place. And we see it because you have given it to us in your word. We see it because the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see and hearts to feel and ears to hear. And so God, make us people who understand the longing of our heart, the distress of this world, can only be solved in the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that the redemption that we will know is something so transformative that, that, that the, the mere world cannot help but be wrapped up in the joy that is to be ours because we are God's children. Lord, I pray you give us perseverance to endure as people who are already saved but not yet saved in the fullest. People who have already won but who are still in the battle. And Lord, I pray that this um, portrait of suffering gives us a platform to to speak into our world boldly, despite what opposition may come our way, that God will fix it. And the only solution for our mess is a God who can kill sin. Praise in your name. Amen.